Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Anyone who tries to talk about Christianity and politics today will very quickly come up against a, a common objection, which is that Christianity and politics have nothing in common, or that church and state should remain separate, or that Christianity is about private morality and politics is about public ethics, and the two are different. Now, this is the sort of objection that you will get amongst secularists and non-Christians, usually looking over at Christianity, especially of the more right-wing kind, and are fearful of what they see as a danger to the public health and the public good. But you'll also get this objection from Christians themselves, from evangelicals and charismatics, and it will usually run along the lines of Jesus was primarily about the salvation of souls, and the salvation of souls is primarily an individual concern. Your forgiveness is a forgiveness of your sin, and that we should be suspicious of something called the social gospel, which would be the organized uh, effort to do something about ills in society. The, the fact that the gospel might have a social relevance is uh, considered with suspicion by a lot of Christians today. And in fact, to such an extent that this is a an idea which is a pretty strong lock hold on the Christian imagination. So it might surprise you then to learn that the earliest and the best visions we have of Jesus, written by people who knew him, written within living memory of him, contain a Jesus that is fundamentally, explicitly, overtly political. And I've already talked about this many times, and for more information on this, for example, you could look at the Bible study on the Gospel of Mark I've been doing, which is also available for download. And you just simply cannot tell the story of the Gospels without referring to words and phrases and ideas, to teachings and actions, which not only are they political and social in their outworkings and in their implications, but they were political and social in their intent. They were meant to be political and they were seen by others to be political. And that Jesus' actions, for example, being executed as king of the Jews, is a political charge against him. That he was crucified is a political torture device reserved for people seen to be enemies of Rome. That every time Jesus spoke to Samaritans, or women, or children, or ill people, he was also making a comment about how society was organized, its public values who they thought was important and worthy of spending resources and time and effort on. And so Jesus' responses to them and to that system is itself highly political and highly charged with politics. And the objections to him were always ones of, of people worried that he was getting too many followers, that the whole world was going over to him, that the Pharisees and the Romans and the tax collectors and the rich were losing their power. This is precisely Mary's hymn, which is in the Gospel of Luke, where she recognizes that the coming of the Messiah will be the time when the rich and the, the mighty are pulled down and the poor are lifted up, the lowly are lifted up. And the angels are announcing the advent of a new king and the wise men, the magi, the magicians are coming from the east in order to pay homage to a new king and Herod is worried about losing his power to this upstart. It's just impossible to tell the story of Jesus without referring explicitly to politics, war, taxes, laws, religion, family, tribe, nation, you name it. There's a socio-political aspect to the Jesus story. And I mentioned earlier how even the sin that put Jesus on the cross, according to the Gospels, are our sins put him there, our organized collective rebellion, our religious rebellion, our popular mob mentality, our Roman Empire rebellions, our greeds. And the personal aspect of sin is definitely there, 
but it's personal because we appropriate and take into ourselves and own for ourselves the sin that we were born into, the systems that we were born into. So when sin becomes personal, it doesn't become private. All it's doing is you are taking on for yourself the narrative and the hymn sheet that you've been offered. You're partnering with the lie. And so sin is not a private affair. It's a personal affair, a representation of a public state of existence. Do you choose to endorse it in your body or not? Do you choose to reject it? Which is why when Jesus calls for repentance, he's calling people to change their hearts and their minds, to turn away from the systems and families and tribes and groups they were born into, which are giving them an identity and a purpose. And he's asking them to die to those things and be born again and be born into his movement, which has its own identity its own destiny, its own laws, its own ethics, its own vision, shared collective vision for the world. And the earliest Christians called this kingdom. Again, they didn't think they were starting a new religion. They thought they were part of a new kingdom. And it's this political imagination that runs throughout the entire New Testament, much like yeast runs throughout dough. Much like a mustard seed works its way through the cracks in the pavement and grows up like a weed, getting into everything and you can never get it out. Now, when it comes to early Christian imagination, you can't get any earlier than the New Testament. People will often start at the Gospels because the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they come at the beginning of the New Testament. But the earliest gospel, which was probably Mark, wasn't written until the late 60s, the early 70s, at the earliest. John was perhaps written in the 80s or 90s at the latest. The gospels are not the earliest text in the New Testament. They describe the life of Jesus, but they themselves were written down after the church had already been in operation for a good 30 to 40 years. For the earliest Christian imagination, we have to go to the letters of the Apostle Paul. Paul was writing to a church in the 40s and 50s. Remember, Jesus was doing his, his stuff in the 30s, and Paul was converted in the mid-30s and started writing shortly after that. So it is to Paul's letters that we look for a window into the earliest Christian imagination. And in Paul's letters, sometimes he quotes things that he himself didn't write. For example, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul inserts into his letter to the people of Philippi a hymn or a poem that almost certainly he didn't write. Almost certainly he is taking this pre-existing material and putting it into his letter because it's a piece of art that the, his audience already was familiar with. He's quoting something back to them in much the same way that if I just said, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, you would know, because it's the most famous hymn in the world, that I'm drawing from common knowledge. I'm drawing from shared experience. I'm trying to use somebody else's words to help me make a teaching point. So, with that in mind, would you like to hear, arguably, the oldest words that anybody ever wrote about Jesus? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul has been writing to his friends and he's been encouraging them in their conflict resolution skills. And he starts in chapter 2, he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, make my joy complete by being of the same mind being in full accord with each other. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he breaks off into a hymn. And a lot of your translations will even demonstrate that this is a poem here, through the way it's written. So then he quotes something that he himself did not write. Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, 
Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Next time somebody tells you that Jesus was not primarily a political figure, or that the New Testament is not a political document, point them to this hymn. We've been trained to think Christianity is primarily spiritual and religious, and so we are trained to read this little hymn as if it's primarily a a statement about how Jesus the God became a human. But that's not what this is about. There are overt politics in this text which we miss. Let's put our political theology hats on and have a look. The first thing to notice is in uh, verse 6, who though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality with God. The phrase is Isa Theo. Donald Trump considered himself Isa Theo, so he ran to become President of the United States. Boris Johnson considered himself Isa Theo, so he ran to become Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Isa Theo, equality with God, was not a religious phrase, it's a political term. It's the term that Augustus used when he decided he was going to throw his hat into the ring to become Caesar, emperor of the known world. In the culture of Rome, the more powerful a human you were, the more of a little god you were. And so to be equal to God, to be Isotheo, was to make claims for yourself as a person, not of divinity, but of human power and responsibility. And here, people writing within living memory of Jesus were saying, he was Isotheo. However, he didn't consider Isotheo a matter for grasping, a thing to be grasped. And some of your translations might have exploited or or used to his own advantage. And all those words are fine, they're all good. The word is harpagmon, which again, there's a political edge to it. It's a technical political term. If you've ever been walking down the street and somebody uh, accosted you and said, we want you to sign this petition, we're trying to change the laws, we're trying to change the zoning, we're trying to uh, stop abortion, we're trying to protect the climate. If you've ever been accosted and asked to sign a petition in order to change some law, you have been at the pointy end of Harpagmon. Likewise, if you've ever uh, tried to run for office, maybe political office, or maybe even just to be head of a board or a member of a PTA or on a church group, any time where you have to go to somebody and say, will I get your support at the time? When the time comes down to it, when it's time to vote or when it's time to show our support, can I count on yours? Can I use your power in order to get our agenda through the system? Note that here it's not isotheo, equality with God, that's the problem. It's harpagmon. Isotheo shows up only in one other place in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, when some Jewish authorities are attacking Jesus, they claim that he wants to be like God or he's making himself equal to God. And for them, that was a reason to try and kill Jesus because this was blasphemy. So note that for the Jews, Isotheo is appalling. And note that for the Romans, Isotheo is a matter of aspiration. And the writers of this hymn, they don't think that Jesus' being Isotheo is a bad thing. In a way, they're siding with the Roman view. It's something that is good. However, harpagmon, the grasping and exploiting and using to your own advantage, that's the thing that these hymn writers don't want to have anything to do with. Jesus was equal to God but he didn't consider it a matter for grasping and exploiting to his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself and became like a servant. The word here for emptied himself is kenosis. Sometimes English translations will say he became nothing or became as nothing. 
but I don't like those very much. They don't really capture what's actually going on here. They miss the politics of it, for one thing. Emptied himself is no less confusing, but it is more accurate. Imagine, if you will, a bathtub filling with water. And uh, we all know that water flows to fill the space. But now imagine that that water had control over its own faculties. Imagine that it could stop halfway through. So that rather than flowing to fill the space, it self-emptied. Or to put it in human terms, in a, a political context, imagine that we are in a reception waiting to meet a politician. And we're all standing around with our wine and cheese and nibbles and we're waiting for the politician to show up. And the doors fly open and the security guards come in and then enters the politician and he's larger than life and all eyes turn to him and all conversation stops and his ego flows to fill the room. Now imagine the same party, the same space, with conversation reverberating around and the door quietly opens, and in slips a little figure, and he, he rests with his back against the wall, and he listens to all the conversations. And after some time, he goes up to one group, and he singles out an individual, and he says, excuse me, I can't help but notice that you're talking about something very similar to what this person over here is talking about. I wonder whether you'd like to meet each other. And the figure gets two different people together and he starts them chatting and then he just quietly slips away. This too is kenosis. Self-emptying. It's when you put a limit on yourself in order to make space for other selves. It is not becoming like nothing. It is not to become subservient or a cringing worm or a doormat. It is not disempowering. I would like to point out that to put a limit on yourself, to practice self-control, assumes a self that needs to be controlled. It is to be aware of the power that you have over others and for others, and the responsibility that you now have for the space in which you're using your power, in which you're extending your ego, in which you're using your will. In her book, Powers and Submissions, the theologian Sarah Coakley writes about kenosis and she describes it as gentle space making. It's the act of withdrawing your will or putting a limits on your will so that other wills might flourish. The kenotic person creates spaces in which other persons can thrive. What do you think people are doing when they practice black magic? Let's leave aside for a minute whether it actually works or not, or whether there's actually anything in it. But the people who are practicing it, what do they think they're doing? A common conception is that they're worshipping Satan or worshipping demons in order to get power. But that's not actually true. That's not actually what's going on here. The occult or occultic thinking is a way of gathering information and knowledge in order to manipulate the universe to your own ends. And the way you do it is through the power of your own will. Alistair Crowley is a famous occultist and black magician. He was the inspiration, amongst other things, for the Satanic Bible. And he summed up his philosophy thus. He said, do what thou will is the whole of the law. And the idea here is that you focus your will onto the powers of the universe. It might be demons or angels or natural forces or other people's wills and desires. And you marshal these things and you gather them together and you, you focus them using your will to dominate, to get your agenda through, to get what you want is the whole of the law. Your will becomes the measure of all goodness. Black magicians don't worship Satan. They worship themselves. I once was talking about this very thing to a group of people who are training to become priests into the Church of England. And one of my students piped up and he said, yeah, I used to be a Satanist and you're absolutely right. If you're interested, you can actually see more of this guy's story. Uh, the BBC did a little documentary on him, which you can find on YouTube. It's called Satanism, Self-Harm and Me, A Tattoo to Change Your Life. But in any case, 
I don't want to get too sidetracked thinking that occultism is all about demons and Satan and magic books and things like that. Because at its base, it's about power and domination. It's about using your will to squash other people's wills. It's about trying to control the space in which what you want happens at the expense of other people's. Have you ever been sitting around a table and everybody's talking and swapping anecdotes and you just really want to get your story out so you shout over other people <laughs> to squash them so that your story can be heard? Black magic. Or have you ever been on the motorway and you can tell that there's somebody trying to get in and all you have to do is just slow down a bit so they can get onto the road but you don't want to give up the space because you want to get where you need to get quicker than them. Black magic. Wherever you find the attitude, my will be done. You are in the realm of the occult. So is it any surprise that the movement that was started by the man who said, not my will, but yours be done, has been inimical to black magic from the very start? And it's less to do with so-called spiritual warfare with naming and shaming demons or calling on angels. And it has to do with the use and abuse of power. In Ephesians 5, Paul gives a whole list of what mutual submission would look like. Everyone be submitted one to another. And he gives a list. And immediately following that is Ephesians 6, where he talks about spiritual warfare and our struggle being against the powers and principalities of this world. Mutual submission, treating others better than yourself creating space for other people's wills to flourish, is spiritual warfare. That is how the earliest Christians waged their struggle against powers and principalities. And here we see it also happening in Philippians. Jesus, who was equal to God, didn't consider being equal to God a matter for grasping and gathering power by his will in order to shape the world to his agenda, but instead he emptied himself, he practiced self-control and became like a servant. And a servant is not here a subservient, cringing worm. A servant exists for the will of someone else. That's their job description. And this is what God is like. Jesus, who is equal to God, doesn't consider being equal to God a matter for grasping power and dominating. Instead, he put a limit on his will to make room for other wills and took on the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He submitted to death, even death on a cross, the Roman political torture instrument. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's worth mentioning here that uh, the Philippians hymn ends with the Lordship of Jesus Christ at a position which is far higher than actually even Isotheo, equality with God, would have been. So even Caesar Augustus, who was Isotheo, in his wildest dreams, he wouldn't have imagined for himself what is ascribed here to Jesus at the end of this hymn. But more importantly, is why this hymn is in this section in the first place. Again, we have this idea, don't we, modern Christians, that this is somehow describing what it's like for God to become a human, and he gave up all his power in order to become a lowly human. But this isn't a description of what it's like for the omnipotent trinity to become an individual human being. Paul says, everyone have this mind amongst you. Be like Jesus Christ. And he doesn't mean if you should find yourself the recipient of divine omnipotent powers, this is how you should act. Instead, he's saying, if you should find yourself to have some power and responsibility in the room, this is how you should hold yourself. Remember, the whole context here of Philippians is conflict resolution. People arguing people fighting, people trying to figure out how to organize themselves as an early church in the way they should go. And 
Paul's solution to them is to have the mind of Christ Jesus, who practiced gentle space making, who withdrew his will in order to make space for other wills so that they might flourish. And this is a supremely and overtly political thing to do. And the political words are all over the place here, as I've shown. But they also happen in, in any time you find humans who are getting together to arrange and organize themselves. They've now created a principality. And what kind of principality are you going to make? Are you going to make a principality which is geared towards dominating the will of one person or a small group of people at the expense of the others? Or are you going to try and create spaces in which people are seeking to give their will away as much as possible, to lay down their lives for their friends, to treat others as better than themselves? And this is where politics comes in. The Christian imagination for politics has to do with creating the spaces and habits and forms of life where kenosis is possible. And you need to ask yourself, are my favorite politicians? Don't look at the other team. Don't look at the other people. Look at your people. Look at the people that you like and the people that are claiming your support and are relying on your moral authority. Don't look at the other team's media mechanisms. Look at yours. Look at the voices that are speaking at you and are assuming that you're going to like what you hear. Are these voices that are all about finding ways to dominate and control and win the culture war? Are they about gathering resources in order to silence the opposition? Do they routinely resort to the killing of human beings in order to solve a problem? Is that a solution they think is a valid option when it comes to defending your property rights or your country or your laws or the life that you are living right now? Are the political groups and social movements and churches and organizations and friendship networks, are the spokespeople, the radio personalities, the public worship leaders, the public preachers, the politicians who are claiming your support, are they known for love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, self-control, open-handedness towards foreigners and outsiders, open-handedness towards the sharing and the giving of resources with the certainty that there's always more than enough to go around? Are the people and the groups that you're a part of able to witness to the powers and principalities, to remind them what their purpose is? And do they have the will and the ability to dismantle inherited traditions and forms of life and institutions that no longer serve their purpose and that aren't loving the neighbor well or treating others as better than themselves? Are you and your groups addicted to common sense and the basic principles of this world? Or are you having your mind renewed according to the mind of Christ? Are you spending your time seeking fellowship and common cause with fellow travelers and people of peace? Or do you spend all your time and your resources and your efforts and your voice shouting louder than the opponents, finding ways to silence them and remove them from the public space? And if you call yourself a Christian and you hear all this, and your first thought is to mock or dismiss this, saying, yeah, but in the real world, you can't organize yourselves or govern anything according to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, or the Fruits of the Spirit. Well, congratulations. You almost certainly are a very good patriot, but please stop calling yourself a follower of the way of Jesus, because the opposite of this way is not the yellow team or the green team or the red team, or the blue team. The opposite to the mind of Christ is black magic. There is, of course, so much more that could be said and will be said in future projects and audio series, but for now I'm going to draw this one to an end. And I hope that it's been of some help to some people as we begin to build again a renewed Christian political imagination for followers of the way. 
Well, I'm joined, as always, by my good friends Sean McCoy and Chris Marchand, and we are here to debrief, bounce ideas off each other, test our metal, and see what they made of Philippians 2, Kenosis, and making space and the politics of grasping and letting go. All right, guys, have you ever heard of any of this stuff before? You've both been in Christian circles. Has anyone ever talked to you about Philippians 2 in this way before? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say yes, because I, I have a seminary education, of course, sir. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I did an exegetical paper in seminary on Philippians 2, yeah. Because I found it, I was intrigued, one, by the, the poetic or a musical aspect of it. You know, like, where did, yeah. where did we think this text came from? I, I was fascinated by that this was a, a text that existed before, you know, that, it, that maybe it arose out of, you know, there's a lot, there's, there's some different theories about it. It kind of, did it rise out of the worship of one of the communities, you know, was it from Philippi yeah. itself? Or, you know, different, yeah. different, different theories. I was fascinated by that, but in the midst of it, talk, talked about this understanding. I, I would say though, that it's not exactly preached on very much, like this understanding of kenosis, of, of, of self-emptying. So, so in that sense, yeah, it, it's kind of like, okay, it's, it's, not, it's something that's not talked about enough. I've only ever heard it talked about in terms of some sort of description of trying to describe what the incarnation was like or something. Yeah, that's right. And they, they always go straight to the, some kind of, as if it's like an early description of the Trinity or something like that. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'd never heard it described politically before until I started doing some study on it. Um, there is some emphasis in sermons on consider others better than yourselves. And so there is that yeah. uh, there, there, I have heard sermons about that. And so there is some relation to it, I would say, you know, that, that we are to <laughs> lay down our lives for others, to give of our lives to others. So yeah, there is some aspects of it, but, but guess what? Not in the sense of the political realm. I've never heard that. <laughs> I mean, so Sean, like I get, Sean, I get emails all the time asking like how come i've never heard this stuff before i've been a christian all my life mm. i've never heard this stuff before i don't know why do you think we rarely hear this stuff well i don't have the seminary degree or the seminary degree <laughs> that the rest of you have so i'm kind of coming to this as the literally the johnny come lately with with my perspective so so my i don't really have a for and i think to your to your question i don't have a formal training or even formal way of even engaging in the, in, with the gospel in this way, with the Bible, and, and even mm. having that imagination, as you, as you put it. And so it's kind of, it's kind of working backwards. And so it's, it, I will say it's definitely part of my journey and, and maturation, what I think the transformational journey and the growth around my faith, to, to stop and not just take these words or these phrases at face value as they're written, you know, between periods and, and then go back mm -hmm. and figure out the context and figure out what it means. One of the big things I came up, I've come across in the last couple of years and, and please excuse me for my ignorance, but it was the timing of Paul in the new, in the, in the gospels, the four gospels in terms of what, when they were written in what order. Yeah. Right. And I, I, because I think to your, again, to your question in an hour sermon on a Sunday, when you get the most, I would say from a, from a Western evangelical standpoint, when you get the most out of your, time in the, in, in the word is going to be during the, or to reflect on it and be taught something new is going to be during that period. It doesn't mean that you weren't reading the Bible beforehand, but if I'm just reading, if I'm reading something through the same lens, right, there's no, there's no intimacy there. There's no expansion upon what it means unless I just happen to have something else. The, the first Bible that I bought was the archaeological Bible, which actually has footnotes and supplementals and stuff like that, because that's where my brain went you know, 15 years ago was I got to figure out the facts and, you know, be able to speak to the dates and all this other stuff. But it doesn't, that, I think that's now a disservice in terms of what you're talking about, which is this imagining what that actually means. What does it mean to die to yourself? What does it actually, and we, like, like Chris said, mm. you hear that when it's kind of poignant around kind of life lessons and how you should live, but really as it, as it influences your understanding of the divine and your understanding of Jesus, it's, it's just not quite as, deep, I don't think, in terms of how you put it in the episode. And for me, it, it pushed me to start seeing, and really kind of brought to mind this struggle I had recently around dualism and stuff like that. And I know, and I always kind of winced and it, when every time you would actually say the word evil, when you'd say something was evil or this is evil, it's kind of okay. like the old, it's kind of like the old church lady 
uh, Saturday Night Live skits here in the States. <laughs> yeah. Where it was like, oh, was it Satan? Was it Satan? And it kind of, I feel like, I feel like it's dismissive of what it really is, because then it becomes this thing over there, and it's us. Well, I can't be evil, so it's got to be good versus evil. So whatever that evil is, is this demon over there, like you were saying. Okay. Versus understanding that it's actually, it's really just putting myself first, and that exercise of selfishness is is really where the where the where the work is to be done, because if it's evil and it's then the bad guys over there. The you know the the the, the person we're going to counter the non-believer or what you know fill in the blank is your favorite enemy. There's no there's no connection there, and so it's easy. So let to, me get this. Let me get this right. Mm-hmm. I so so language of good and evil is somehow associated in your mind with with me like with pushing something, making somebody an other so you don't have to deal with them anymore, rather than recognize that it's actually in my own life. Correct. That this is happening. Because oh, it's 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 a pol- it's yeah. what polarization is. I mean, right now, the look polarization. at the look, yeah, okay. Back to the political climate. I mean, we're yeah. going through the RNC and DNC nominations right now in the states. Every, I, I I only catch a few words because I don't. We're not watching it here and there based on what people and a little bit here and there because you just you can't get away from it sometimes. Uh, you know, so we're putting on the television to look at the hurricane, and you know it's on all the major channels. It's like okay, but it's just it's that divisive language because it's separate. It 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 takes away the mm. ownership of I have to. I mean, love, one of the ways I see love is loving somebody for their problems and who they are. Well, if it's evil and it's over there, then I can, right. I can just dismiss it. And I don't have to, I don't have to concern myself with, with changing it, the heart of that situation. Right. I just have to make sure that I'm better than that. And if I win. How do you deal with the light and dark language in like, I don't know, the gospel of John, men love darkness because their deeds are evil. Well, How does that? What happens when I say that? I, th- I think it's a I think it's a misunderstanding of what darkness is. I think it's a misunderstanding of the essence of what it means to not have light because this goes into the language that's so prominent in our world, in the hymns or whatever else that this little light of mine I'm going to let it shine, right? Right, and yet we 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 absolutely dismiss the fact that darkness because we associate it with suffering, we associate it with things that are wrong, with discomfort, and we're we're trying to get to huh. a place of ultimate comfort, right? We're supposed to get yeah. rich and have, you know, in fly first class everywhere and have all the extras that we're supposed to have. And luxury is supposed to be a standard, not, you know, something, something that's extra. And so anything that counters that, we have to, we have to defeat that. And I think it becomes part of this win at all costs and we're better. And this overtakes that versus the beauty of the, the symmetry around radiance, which is required, which is, which requires both light and dark to, to be synergistic. Chris, do you think there's any space today for evil language, good and evil? Is that is there room for us today in that? <laughs> That's really interesting. I, I'm still there. I, I like talking about evil. But uh, <laughs> you're not you're not as radiant as Sean, clearly. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> I think because I like stories. And so like, I mean, if, if anybody reads like a Stephen King novel, boy, we better be we better be willing to talk about evil because he's painting it out for us. Like so I think one thing in terms of my own faith, when I hear this separation of darkness and light, Hmm. I think of these things, I I, I would actually in some ways be like Sean, what are those things that I'm drawn towards? And the darkness are are the things that are away from God. And I'm not naturally drawn towards the light. I want to, I want to revel in the darkness. And for me as, as, as a Christian, as a follower, that it's about being filled with the spirit then. And so that's how I know, like that's, that's how I can even know how to be drawn toward the light is, you know, it's a prayer. It's God, fill me with your spirit that I might know you. And that's the, that's my guide. That's my, you know, I mean, scripture is my guide as well. Of course, I I guess I'm not thinking it, see we're getting away from political things do you see how we're i'm i'm, I'm talking about my own spiritual life here right i i've i've, I've already done that I've, I've turned this into a sermon i think well, yeah if the spirit is the agent of creation of putting order back into out of chaos uh if that is the work of the spirit if that if the shalom of everything in its rightful place that is a political act right justice and peace are are shalom which is about how you organize yourselves and use your power and, and resolve your conflicts. So now we're into the world of politics. Philippians 2 is specifically set up within a context of how to organize the early church. You know, everyone consider others better than yourself. 
this is how you resolve your problems. You do it in Syntyche. I, I beg you to, to not fight anymore. That's the context, right? And then he offers, he plonks this poem down in the middle of it, which is this metaphysical poem, some people think, which is actually all about, this is the right way to use your power. So the spirit of Jesus is a political act in the world, right? So, so can, I, can we riff on your um, the shalom? So recently I was, as I was explaining what that word, the, the basis of the word is, is around living with the tension, right? The peace okay. is, it's not, for many years back to the kind of the dualism side, you know, I, I always envision peace as the elimination of suffering, the elimination of something. We would have okay. peace if there was no problem over here. Right. right. Kind of back to the light and darkness. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. But what shalom is the ability for all the, you said things in their, in their proper place, right? So if, if, can we get, can we have all, what is it all light? If, if it's nothing but light, what does it look like? It's blinding, you can't see it. If right. it's all darkness and nothing else, you can't see either. So both of those extremes end up in the same place. But the balance and the, and the living with, the, with those two in, in harmony and in shalom, as I've, as I've come to understand it, mm-hmm. provides radiance and provides kind of, a, that's where the balance comes from. Like that's how bridges work. That's how tables work. There's a balance of all the forces versus an overwhelming force in one way or the other. And if it is overwhelming, Attention. then it's no longer in balance. And so, so that's why I mean, you, you know. it's, 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 my mind went straight to, to, to lethal violence, right? Because when you have an enemy, if, if what you're saying, Sean, is true, mm-hmm. which I think there's something in there, then killing your enemy is the ultimate act of removing all tension. It's the attempt to yeah. not live at all with tension. Yeah. It's the attempt to just completely dominate the space. And you want to eradicate the thing that's causing you trouble right. rather than living with it, learning to live with right. it, learning to engage, learning to meet the other you know, halfway, all that, all that language of real peacemaking and bridge building and conflict management just goes out the window as soon as you blow your enemy's brains away, right? You're using uh, a different language or a different uh, interaction to dominate, to truly dominate and overcome yes. and just eliminate. And that's a military objective. I mean, that's what you're, you can talk to me about peacekeeping and, you know, keeping, that's, that's more law enforcement. That's what it's supposed to be. But military action is not, there's no, there's an objective and it, and it's yeah. it's a it's a straight path that you blaze to get and you do whatever it takes to get to that point to achieve that goal and that's it and if you look back at our in the way that that in the way that has embedded itself into our culture the way it's embedded ourselves into masculinity the way it's embedded itself into how we do anything business especially in the western world it is like no if i'm my job is to go out and conquer and eliminate and overcome and, and decimate the enemy which is anybody i'm competing against and we don't allow for room for anything else. I mean, a kenotic, a kenotic life is not a winner. Right. You're not a winner at all costs. You not, might not even look like a victor because your opponents, the weak-willed, the weak-minded, they're all still there in the room with you. And you might even be doing what they want. Want. You know, that might be one of the outcomes of living a kenotic life is that you might end up willfully choosing to do what other people want. Right. So you don't look like a winner. Right. Not, not of the, not in the way that we see the world, and you, and you, in, your, in the speech, in the talk you just gave around the entry of the, you know, the flamboyant, charismatic leader, whether it's political or otherwise, who comes in the room and just the alpha all the male, tension, right? The alpha, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's this center, and all the glow comes from this. Versus, honestly, how would how would Christ come into the room? What would Christ's right. impression be? What would Christ's impact be? Like you said, slip in kind of on the back, listen. And then what I thought was so beautiful about what you talked about is, and then the, the act of community, of building relationships rather than destroying them is what you were alluding to in the talk about, I see Chris over here and I see Stephen over here and go, y'all should talk. Y'all should know each other. And maybe even help facilitate that if there's a differences or whatever, that that's that loving, but that's political because they don't know that, right? How many people do you, you see this person, this person and go, man, they'd be really great if they knew each other. There's some yeah. synergy there. And the political yeah. act is to kind of go, hey, hey, let me put you all together and kind of help facilitate that. And then you let it go. Right. So the, what have I gained? What have I actually gained by that? T- technically, on a, on a material side, maybe nothing. not. But, yeah, maybe not. But from a spiritual, but from a communal standpoint, what was gained is now that you know, the thread and the synergy between the, the, in the community is now deeper and greater relative to all of us. I mean, there's, I've talked about it many times and I'm going to get him on this podcast eventually and William Kavanaugh 
who writes, he's the Catholic social uh, political theologian. And he writes about one of the church's main jobs is to complexify space. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but, and he, think, he basically looks at our world. And he's like, one of the problems is our world is too simple. It, it, it just has the state, which kind of dominates everything or the, na- the nation state. You know, it's kind of takes, so it's taken over all the, the public space as it were. And all the little human organizations that used to exist, there used to be families and churches and hospitals and schools. And, and you, you would actually live in a world in which you had competing allegiances and you'd have to negotiate those competing allegiances, which would be the tension you're talking about, Sean. You had to negotiate those competing allegiances. And that itself was part of the fullness of life. It led actually to peaceful life because you were, you were negotiating space. And part of the story of the rise of the nation state is the story of one human organization taking over, almost like the blob, it takes over all the other things. So now the state, the nation state is now in charge of peacekeeping and you know, education and trade and religion. And, and churches just see themselves as, their, as, as a little unit inside the larger unit, which is the state. And they see their job as just producing good citizens for the state, for example. And so Kavanaugh says, our space has become too simple. There's not enough voices. There's not enough complex allegiances. It's, it's become like one voice is dominant and it's, it's a bully and it's taken over. So part of the church's job or role is to create more complex environments to actually start to elevate more voices to, and I wonder whether I'm, you know, that, that story of the guy who gets two different people together to have a conversation. And then that alpha male slips away has in fact created a complex relationship, a complex space, a new principality, even like a new to create new organizations that might even compete for your allegiance is itself an act of peacemaking. Yeah. Chris, what were you going to say? I'm hoping that in some ways what I'm going to say relates to all that you guys have just been brought up. But uh, one of the aspects of your talk on kenosis, kenotic theology, and, and I'm really glad that you brought up the Magnificat from, yeah. from Mary. And because, and, and I'm a church guy, you know, it's in my culture. My big thing in seminary was, you know, learning liturgy, learning worship, learning how to lead people in song. A person like me, can get really focused on just the worship of the church. And as I've gone on, I've found, oh, worship leads us hmm. into action for our community. It should. And so here's what I want to say. In my church, during Advent, we pray through the Magnificat. So one thing that I would be an advocate for is that our, our gathered times of worship, wh- whatever we find ourselves in, for, for us, it's liturgical. You know, we're reading certain cycles of scriptures. We have certain, certain set prayers. But when I look at my liturgy, you know, and I'm Anglican, you know, I guess that's a free ad, free ad for the Anglican church all around the world. <laughs> when I look at our liturgy, it, mm. it, it is completely self-emptying. Yeah, like, right. Like, like I am constantly reminded that I am to give myself over to God and to my neighbor. Right, right. And, and, and so then when, I, when it comes around, the cycle comes around again in Advent and it's yeah. I'm reading the Magnificat. I go, you know, he's cast down the high. (laughs) He's brought up the lowly. And and sometimes, sometimes as the worshiper, sometimes I feel like the lowly and I go, okay, so how, how can God use little lowly me? But Mm. sometimes I'm the high and I go, oh my goodness, I, it's time for me to empty myself of my own power. And and I go through my own cycles of worship. And so all I really want to say is that I think just like those conversations that you talk about, like where you find you give space for somebody else to speak, worship is this chance for God to speak into our lives so that we can learn how to become these self-emptying people. Well, this so. is what Sarah Coakley, who's the, the priest and the theologian who I quote, she's written about kenosis. Uh, she wrote a brilliant chapter. I mean, she's operating at a really high level, like academically, she's really... <laughs> turning at all gears uh, very high but mm-hmm. she wrote a really good book called kenosis or a chapter called kenosis and subversion and she ultimately ends with saying prayer is kenosis so yeah. worship and prayer is yeah. creating gentle space where my voice my ego my 
kind of I, I'm not sitting on my own throne anymore. I create the space for someone else to be there, another will. And and without that, without kenosis, you can't even worship or pray, right? And kenosis is fundamentally political. So again, worship is a political act because you are doing something with your own power. How, do, how does this work out, Chris, when you're actually sort of running a congregation or leading, you know, a group of people? Have you ever found a way to to help create worshipful, gentle space, you know, in the day-to-day running of a thing? Oh, that's a good question. I feel like, you know, I'm part of a church plant. And, and so we're in, in a way, we're always on the ground running. We're just trying to figure it out in the moment sometimes. During Advent and Lent, we have often let others come and speak. So they're not giving the sermon necessarily, they're, uh, but they're speaking from their own lives. When we've done that, we've gotten to see some of the utter pain that people have been through in their lives. And, and, mm. and they're just able to speak their story. They're able to see how, and sometimes, sometimes they're right in the midst of their own healing. You know, like it's yes, not as if right. there's some kind of, they're not all put together. <laughs> no. and, and you're not requiring that they've solved their problems before they can talk. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, right. no, we did. No, no. Um, yes, exactly. We, we, we welcome them to share from their own life, whatever yeah. they're in the midst of. And yeah. there's a beauty to that because then we, we all then start to see, oh my goodness, we've all been through so much, you know, and, and there's a, it, it leads us to a place of openness to each other. Do you find that, is it possible to, to lead that way? How does this become a language? Mm. I'm speaking now to somebody who is seen as a leader. How would yeah. you imagine leading in a self-emptying way? Oh, um, do you mean like during a Sunday morning worship? Well, like during... or just in your role as, are you a manager of anyone? Do you have anybody, volunteers or staff that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so <laughs> right now, this this uh, this week, my church has had a lot of talks about what's our direction? Where are we going? Okay. Where are we headed? And there's, okay. in some ways, uh, you know, we'll see if this gets out publicly. My church is in a bit of an existential crisis. Like, okay. who are we? What's what are, Where are we focused? And there's people that are just like, there's lots of conversations happening. I think as a leader, I could be really threatened by that. Yeah. Um, oh, he, here's something. Somebody has uh, had the audacity to question whether or not our leadership is very organized. Uh, we, they've, they've accused us. They've right. said, you know what? You guys really struggle with organization. You need to do something about this. Me as a so leader. Now you have a crisis point. Yes, right, right, right. What are you going to do? How, if Jesus, how are you going to have the mind of Christ, Chris? So I had a guy in my church, um, a, a really a leader, a guy that's led companies. And guess what? He was so gracious to me. And I'm going to move forward with this guy and, yeah. and learn from him and maybe sit at his yeah. feet a little bit. Yeah. So instead of me going, hey, I'm the priest, I've been ordained. Who are you? Yeah. It's about me going, okay, speak. I'm listening. I'm open. And your, your friend with the years of business experience has yeah, also yeah. practiced some b- bit of kenosis. Because yeah. that friend has also said, let me share. Yeah. So what yeah. they've done, what he's done is he's extended his will out towards yeah. you. And he said, I've got this. This is, this is me. Yeah. But he hasn't formed a committee to oust you from the church. Yeah. <laughs> written nasty letters, right? He's right. not trying to eradicate you. He said, this is me. I'm good at this. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. And now you get to say, this is me. I'm not good at this. <laughs> I would like to have space for you to come into my, yeah. my life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's like you read about kenosis and you might think it's this kind of weird theory. And I feel like, oh, no, I can see that happening every day. That's normal. That is a normal, peaceful, healthy way of acting in an organization. It's not an yeah. extraordinary thing. You know, that's right. So I think that's kenosis, what you've just experienced. But uh, now your job, Chris, as a public <laughs> professional Christian uh-huh. is to find more, to actively look for more ways to do that to other people. Yeah. To raise yeah. up the lowly, as it were. Yeah. To bring down the humble, uh, to the proud. And you're the proud one right now. You're the, you're the one with, yeah. the, with the position and the power. So how do you actively find other people's expertise, you know, and lift mm-hmm. them up? <laughs> yeah, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a joyful sorrow about it all. Okay. Yeah. In the sense of like, I kind of, I kind of want to cry right now in, in just humility and thankfulness. And I, and I just hope my prayer is that whatever my relationships are with people in my church or, or outside church, 
to move forward in grace with each other. And, and I, yeah, I, I just get this yeah. joyf- this feeling of joyful sorrow. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, lament is a thing that, I mean, we always talk about everybody, every Christian knows that the Psalms are filled with lament and then nobody ever really does it or does much about it. Sorrow and repentance, part of that, it means uh, change your ways or perish. And it doesn't mean change your ways or you'll be sent to hell and burning forever. It means change your ways because the life you're living right now is destructive. It's, you know, it's leading to, to people being squashed and lives being wasted. And so repent, change your ways. And you can't repent without lamentation, right? Without sorrow. So Stephen, can I kind of push back just a little bit about what you said and, and not yeah. in just in a general sense, I, there's a negativity bias as a, is a thing out there that we that we all quote unquote suffer from, and it's you know the the sec, the uh, the definition of the of the word is more or less just that we remember the negative, right? It's the okay. it's the bad apple that swallows the whole bunch. All we focus on is the apple. The fact that there was forty five good apples and one bad one, we forget the forty five that are good, right? It's just kind of what we do. What you said has kind of triggered that a little bit around, you know, what, what are we doing about it? And I kept thinking, well. You know, there was the there's the crucifixion. There's all these other things that people have done over the years that actually are doing something about that. And I think we sometimes can forget. And I'm not saying that I'm not I'm not saying that you forgot that Jesus died on a cross by any stretch. I'm just saying <laughs> we 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 tend to see this the lament. We tend to we tend to stay there, and I think we tend to to think there is no hope. And that's why I think and I think this back to the kind of the tension or the balance of this joyful sorrow that that Chris was talking about that we 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 can lament at the same time. But it doesn't mean that, that we stay there, and it doesn't mean that it's the only thing that's going to happen, but that there is something else. And that, quite honestly, we, the beauty is we're given the gift of we can do something about it. We can enter into the into the situation and do something around what what do we do? How do you lead a church oh, yeah. right now? It's right? not hopeless at all. Right, like a, right. a much more hopeless is when you're around in a church where the leadership never admits they're wrong. There's a hopeless, a hopeless environment, right? But if I saw an alpha male with tears in his eyes saying, I have abused my power. I have silenced voices. I am going to step away for a time and let other people speak. And he says that with lamentation. I feel like their hope has, as Leonard Cohen says, there's a crack in everything. That's how the hope gets in. Perhaps how the light gets in, he said, but you know. <laughs> um, and, and, and hopefully the pastor can say that before he's now fired, right? <laughs> because that's 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 so often where we find ourselves in that the 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 leader, oh, like you graceless, know, this... graceless cancel culture. Uh, I always well, find it funny evangelicals talking about the left and their cancel culture when evangelicals perfected cancel culture a long time ago. Yeah, a graceless environment in which you're fired instantly if you don't look well, like a winner. See, I was actually speaking, I, I agree with you, by the way, but I was actually speaking about, uh, for instance, this past week, like a, a Jerry Falwell yeah. Jr., who yeah. who held out for so long yeah. that, that he became this bastion of, of that he, uh, he, nobody could challenge him for anything. And yeah. then it just results in his own ruin. Yeah. Um, like Repent he, or perish. Yeah, yeah. So for me to all along the way as a leader to admit, yes, yeah. <laughs> I have these faults. It really, it's, it's, it saves me from true utter ruin. Well, like Tolstoy said, a lie, you can never, uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, he basically said a lie can never be told without damage. Mm-hmm. And, and to say I got it all right and I'm perfect is a lie. You can never tell that lie. Even if it protects you for a while, it will never lead to health it will always lead to damage because a lie can never be told without damage i want to ask you both a question around that because it's that's a phrase around i think it's kind of this i don't call it flippant but it becomes a almost becomes like a safeguard of being able to say i uh of course of course nobody's perfect of course i'm not perfect i i make mistakes it almost becomes a little bit dismissive and irresponsible i think at some level because it kind of kind of sets up the you know, maybe the missing the mark, you know, is, is, is kind of the expectation versus the goal of not, right? Yeah, and, right, right, right. And so, so I wondered, where, where do you think, where do you think this need for perfection in any form comes from? Well, that's the, that's the kind of ultimate sin, isn't it? I mean, the perfection is the eat this and you'll be like gods, right? That's the original fall, downfall, <laughs> is, is, 
perfection when you attain for perfection you're attaining for divinity and if you assume that you're perfect you are now assuming you're a god which by the way is idolatry that means you're assuming that you had no creator and you have no purpose and you will have no end <laughs> if you think you're perfect so perfection is a is a kind of an ultimate act of aspiring to divinity or just to, to be over the lord of hosts right this is why Kierkegaard said, before God, we are always in the wrong. And that's a good thing. It's a gospel. It's gospel to be told that you're always in the wrong. It doesn't mean you're evil and you're cringing worm and you're going to go to hell or that you're despised. It just means you're wrong. And that's okay. Not being perfect is fine because you're a human being and human beings aren't perfect. So all you're doing is you're just accepting the reality of your own existence. And Chris talked about existentialism before. The existential crisis is the crisis that arises when you're existence doesn't match your perception and so if you think you're perfect or if you think you can live in a perfect human environment well then you are going to have an existential crisis because your existence is not matching your perception and so our job is to just get a grip or become sober as Kierkegaard says just stop being drunk uh, that you're going to build something perfect and become sober drink more black water as Jerry Falwell does <laughs> go and google black water and jerry Powell if you want to know what i mean but become sober don't get drunk on your own ideas or your own institutions that you're building because this is why you know we we're going to talk about it we've got a guy on he's going to show up as, as a guest named justin berenger and we already talked a little bit about christian anarchy before which shot, shot chris's eyebrows through the top of his head but you know when we talk about anarchy we're not talking about violence on the streets we are talking about people who organize themselves in such a way that they realize their organization itself is faulty and will be faulty and should not persist throughout history unchanged they are willing to dismantle their organizations if they need to and that's pretty much all that anarchists really mean political christian anarchists are just trying to build organizations that don't develop this dominating life of their own and they're willing, they're holding it lightly, you know, and they're willing to say, I don't need to share, have the platform every single Sunday at 10 o'clock till 11 o'clock, just because that's what people like us do. I'm willing to share the space. I'll dismantle the, the habits that we've developed if it means that power is going to be better used elsewhere, right? Because they don't think it's perfect. So I want to, I want to plug a couple of things real quick and it'll make sense. So it made me think of my friend, Janet Williams, who oh, I hope to have on here. Yeah, I found her on same place I found you, Steve, with the, on the uh, the Nomad podcast. But she actually was just on. Uh, I introduced her to my friend Seth Price over at the Can I Say This at Church podcast, which you are coming up on as a guest for all those that are out there. But she talks about the the example of going. You know, if when you go have a meal, like you don't eat the you don't eat the menu, right? You eat the meal. Right. You order from the menu. There's an irony to what you're saying around. It, it's meant for us to, to, to find freedom. It's meant for us to die to ourselves. It's meant it's, there's kind of a, there's an there's an inherent initial self application, but then it, it does this amazing shift. I think in terms of the in terms of the application, like you're saying, where it's no longer about me, but I'm so aware of myself that I know that right. Yeah, and it becomes this. And she talks about and her 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 one of her great talking points is empathetic theology, which is one of my favorite areas to to, to think about. But in this vein of it's, it's this you're so you're so in tune with yourself that you let it go but you don't get so wrapped up in the map or like Keith Giles who we've talked about um, Keith Giles talks about it's not the map it's the treasure kind of thing and it's it's in it, it is this living treasure it's this it's not something stuck in a stone tablet waiting to be discovered in the dead someplace in the Middle East hopefully in the future God is alive God is here the spirit is here the, the Christ it's all it's all here at the moment for us to engage in and grow in and and have the and wrestle with these ideas. What else do you think it means when Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it? Right, right. Lose your life to find yourself. You, you let go of yourself and you, in an environment of other people who are also letting go of themselves. And all of a sudden you start to find new people and healthy people are being generated. But, yeah. but back to your issue around where, where is this, where's the education coming from? But if the, if the again, to pick on, if you if you have a certain set of, uh, criteria that you're looking to fill in terms of 
the validity of it around culture, your belief, and you're kind of using the Bible to piecemeal that belief system in, then you don't even have to go read those aspects or even look at that perspective. It's in there, and if you stumble upon it at some point, it may sound like anything else. You can, you can, I've read stuff before and then never really understood it until later. Well, friends, I don't think we're going to get to the end of kenosis and the incarnation. Surprise, surprise, we're not going to plumb the depths of the incarnation in this half an hour chat. But I have so enjoyed talking with you. So Sean and Chris, I thank you for your time. And I look forward to continuing our Tent Theology podcasts as we continue. And I will say that we are about to uh, enter a new phase of Tent Theology. And in the next few episodes, I will be doing a specific question and answer sessions. We will be having some more in-depth, long-form interviews. And we will start to develop and release some Bible study material as well. So watch this space. There's more to come. But we have now finished the uh, 10 episodes of the first season of Followers of the Way. And we are going to be doing some more stuff to lead into the second season in the next few weeks and months to come. But until then, until next week, I thank you and I wish you well. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.